This episode is brought to you by Saks Off Fifth, where you can find designer clothes, shoes, bags, home decor, and beauty products up to 70% off. We'll explain more in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. I was broken in 2014. Building Bumble and finding a way to build this product that had intention, purpose, passion, that rebuilt me. And it, it literally put me back together. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice. And we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Whitney Wolf Hurd. She is the founder and CEO of Bumble, a multi billion dollar platform that started as a dating app and is now a go to destination for connection, whether you're looking for a partner, a friend, or a new job. Bumble IPO'd earlier this year, making Whitney the youngest ever female CEO to take a company public. Whitney launched Bumble in 2014 after leaving Tinder, where she was a co-founder and the VP of marketing. Whitney was also a guest on our first podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, back in 2018. And now she's helping us kick things off with our new podcast, 9 to 5-ish. Whitney, welcome back and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, guys. So now we are going to jump in with our lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. This is our warm up. First job on your resume. You know what? I worked at a boutique in college, but my first real, real job was taking on this marketing role at Hatch Labs, which is where we incubated and launched Tinder. That's a good first job. All right. Most recent job then. Mom. What is a secret hobby or skill that you have? Photography. Really? Like yeah. what kind of photography? I was obsessed with travel photography. I was convinced I was going to be a Nat Geo photographer, but those dreams did not come true. Finish the sentence. What best describes your workday? Working nine till blank. I would say my workday really starts. I open my eyes and before I go and get my child, I really start you know, trying to get through the important stuff and then take probably an hour to be with baby, do the breakfast time, do that whole thing. And then I'm pretty much back to back for several hours, but I'm trying to get away from the all day Zoom so we can have creative freedom time. What time do you tend to just like be like, I'm done for the day? It honestly depends. It really depends. Sometimes, sometimes 3.30, sometimes 8.30. You know, it just depends. Are you an inbox zero person? You know, I used to be, but it was driving me crazy and it was an impossible standard told myself to. I try to be an inbox like 35, 40 person. That's actually where I tend to be. So I appreciate that. What's the last thing you Googled? That's a good question. Let's look. Oh my gosh. I Googled how to wean your child off of a pacifier. (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) I don't even want to go there yet mentally. Yeah. Who would play you in a movie? A movie? Yeah. I have no idea. Who do you think? I could see like a Reese Witherspoon, Hello Sunshine production. Well, Reese is literally my favorite human on planet Earth. I think she is the sweetest, coolest. She's sunshine. That's what she is. She just really feels like sunshine. 
All right. Should we get into this? Yes. Okay. Let's go for it. So I want to go back. People listening may not know the origin story of Bumble. Put us kind of where you were in 2014. So the cliff notes are this. 2014, I leave Tinder. And when I leave Tinder, I go through a very, very public exit, if you will. Skip ahead a little bit. This public exit comes with a lot of toxicity from the internet. This is the first time it's ever happened to me. All of these strangers are essentially attacking my character, questioning my character, and just dismantling my confidence to a point of, you know, really quite dark times. And, you know, this was pre me too, pre times up, pre the Uber situation and, and the, the situation that was being documented on the internet really put me in a place where I was this woman villain. And it was really hard because pretty much the world turned on me and I was a nobody, right? I'm just this 24 year old trying to just make it through the day. And it sent me to this very dark place where I was incredibly depressed. I didn't want to leave the house. I was just in panic paranoia. It was awful. And why I'm telling you this is it was really kind of the beginning of what would become Bumble. I wanted to really go out and build a social platform for women to find respect and to be treated well and to be treated with kindness and to treat others with kindness, to try to engineer this contagious good behavior versus contagious negative behavior, which is what I felt the internet was completely overrun with. And so I started sketching out this concept for basically a woman's only kindness social network called Mercy. And the currency was compliments. So in order to communicate with someone, you had to compliment them and kind of unlock this positive virality. And it was then that spontaneously I had been contacted by email by a former, you know, acquaintance that I met through the Tinder days. And he had founded this international dating app called Badoo. He reached out and said, can we talk? What are you doing next? I'd love to hire you to be the CMO of Badoo. And I basically politely declined. And he was quite persistent. And he encouraged me to sit down and meet with him. And I said, non-negotiable. Whatever I do next, I'm my own founder, my own CEO. And I want to do something to make the internet kinder and to empower a better way forward for women and youth and, you know, hopefully everyone. And so after me saying no about 25 times, he basically said to me, okay, instead of you going and fundraising from Silicon Valley, what if you are your own CEO and founder of this business that you want to do? But what if you do it? by taking investment from my company, Badoo, and not just capital investment, but you're able to leverage a certain subset of our engineers and our product team and our data team. So you can basically leverage a lot of this infrastructure that we have. And why don't you go start your own business? How old are you? I just turned 25, like a week before. And why did people think you were crazy to make that type of of commitment with someone? They thought I was crazy because of the ownership structure. So in Silicon Valley, the founder starts with like 100%. Then they dilute themselves for their co-founder and for their engineers. And then they raise money. And what people don't know is they're a bit short-sighted, right? And I had lived through this whole tech startup world. So I watched lots of people go through Series A to Series D. And the folks that got to their IPO, these founders that started with 100%, they'd IPO with 8 9% because they had to sell so much of their business along the way to scale. And they went through hell to fundraise a billion times. 
And so I kind of had that foresight and he made me this deal where he said, you are founder and CEO. Here's your 20%, your undilutable 20%. And it was that word non-dilutable, right? Because that's the secret sauce. So basically what you start with 20%, you'll end there as well. And that is so profound because people, what they couldn't see at the time, they're like, you're going to give 79% of your business away. But what they didn't realize was I'd probably be better off at the end because I would have had access to his resources. I could have scaled quicker and I was able to have access to his years of expertise and this scaling a dating product and all of his team, right? And so it was this brilliant opportunity. And why would I ever let ego come in the way of being able to leverage someone that has access to something more than I do? And people couldn't wrap their head around it. In this moment in time, you're just turned 25, been a part of like a rocket ship, but also went through hell getting out of it. Who were you going to, to talk about like how to evaluate this, to talk through how to think through all of this? It was an isolating and lonely time, 25 years old. None of my friends could really relate to this, right? A lot of my friends are still going out every night and being 25. And the one person that really had my back was my now husband and his grandfather. They were my guiding lights. They gave me advice and they walked me through things and they supported and believed in me when really pretty much everyone else turned on me. So those were my, those were my pillars through that. And, you know, Andre, my former business partner, he was great. We had a great working relationship. And so it just kind of worked. I remember I was actually looking for this and I couldn't find it, but it was either end of 2014 or early 2015. You sent us a cold email Uh and you were like, hey, you probably heard about me from Tinder. I'm starting this new thing. I really would love to tell you about it. Like you wouldn't even put it in writing. And I remember Danielle and I literally were sitting next to each other when we got the email. We're like, we should talk to her. That's so funny. And there were two things that struck me at the time. One, there was no stopping you. Like you had just that energy like behind your eyes. And two, you could tell like you had been through stuff. You could tell that you were a little bit shell-shocked and like didn't know who to trust. And I'm really curious in watching your trajectory with the business and like we're talking to you now. It's I like lost track of time, but a few months after becoming the youngest female CEO to take a company public, you emit confidence. Yeah. And when I think about you at that moment in time, like you were finding your confidence back, put us like psychologically where you were and how you started to rebuild that confidence. So building Bumble rebuilt me, if that makes sense. I was broken in 2014. And, you know, there's still days I feel broken right now, but that's life, right? We all have traumas and we all have struggles and we all have challenges, but building Bumble and finding a way to build this product that had intention, purpose, passion that rebuilt me. And it, it literally put me back together and it was hard. It was scary. And it was isolating because you know how it is building a company. You remember the early days, not a lot of people believe in you. You don't have a lot of people on your court. I think it still feels like that. It's, it's just that the stakes are higher and it's different what you're being told no for. You're absolutely right. I mean, I still feel that way today and we're a public company now. And I don't know if the two of you can relate to this, but the no's are very motivating to me. I'm so convicted in what we're doing. I believe in this so much. Like I fundamentally believe in it. There's no one that can talk me out of my belief and conviction in this business. Right. And I feel like the two of you are the same way that when someone tells you, no, it's just more motivation to be like, well, let me show you. You know, it's funny because when I look at our story, I 
see that like how you can see it. But in the moment, I think it took me a while to take it as motivation. I think what it does is it makes me be like, okay, well, what am I doing wrong to get that answer? And not that I'm going to change what I want, but maybe change how I go about it. Interesting. I've never thought about it that way. For me, it's weird. It's like, it's kind of like bookends. Like when you would think I shouldn't feel confident is when I'm like, those no's drive me. And I'm like, I'll show you. And when you think I should feel really confident because X, Y, and Z have gone well, those no's really get me. Yeah, That's where it hurts. And I find it hard to snap out of it. Yeah. That's interesting. See, I find myself and maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know. But where I find myself is I feel more frustrated that people don't see what I see. That's a very frustrating thing for me. When I can see something so clearly, it's almost like I can see it on the wall. I can see where we're going. I can see why we would want to roll out Bumble for Friends or Bumble Hives, or I can see why we want to do that. And over the years, people have said, why would you ever do that? This makes no sense. This is stupid. And people internally, right? That's the stuff that I think to your point, Danielle, is like, where am I miscommunicating myself? Where am I not explaining this vision properly? Because Sometimes when you found a business, you know, you two have very clear sights for where the skim should go. I have very clear understanding for where Bumble should go. And I think what we need to realize is not everyone can always see that exactly the same way. And we have to communicate that very clearly. I think that that communication point is something that I didn't realize in in starting a company Mm -hmm. where I thought almost the communication was pitching, right? Can I get someone to join? Can I get someone to invest? Can I get someone to partner? And it really is much more of that day-to-day pitching. And that's where I think Carly and I have have certainly struggled, as I think every founder has, because you have to constantly say it in different ways. Right. You know, that's what I do think sets good businesses apart from great businesses is great businesses every single day have to fight to survive. Their mission and their vision, it it's not necessarily attainable for everyone, right? If you look at innovation the majority of people can't wrap their heads around it in that moment. And so it's exhausting, right? It is exhausting to constantly have to be your own cheerleader and your own advocate, but we are lucky. We have great teams that believe in what we're doing. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the secret sauce is to have a passionate team that gets it because then you're a unit. You're not a solo trooper. And that, that makes it more exciting. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I am guilty of pretty much wearing the exact same outfit day after day during the pandemic, probably more than I'd ever care to admit. But now that things are going back to normal, I am starting to pay attention to what I wear every day and dressing to impress, if you will. And I realized I need new stuff, which is why I have been using Saks Off Fifth nonstop. They have all of the best clothes, shoes, bags, you name it, at up to 70% off their full price. And I love their app, which you can constantly browse and add to when you're on the go. And you get app-only offers, which I love. So download today and use code AppSF, that is A-P-P-S-F, to get 10% off your very first $100 Plus in-app purchase. Find your next brag-worthy designer steal at Saks Off Fifth. You can shop in-store with their Saks Off Fifth app or online at SaksOffFifth.com. That's S-A-K-S-O-F-F-5-T-H.com.
I want to talk about teams for a second. You hired a lot of people that you knew pre-Bumble. Yeah. You hired friends, not just like acquaintances, like really like good lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. Danielle and I, when we started the skim, we had lots of like amazing, talented friends that I'd be so honored to work with. But we were always petrified of like bringing in close friends because we're like, what if it doesn't go well? What if we have to fire them? And so I'm really curious just what your experience and advice would be to others who are thinking about whether it's a co-founder or not, thinking about bringing in friends or family into a business. Yeah. So this is a very interesting topic and one that has come with a lot of heartache and a lot of joy. And here's the deal. I didn't have a choice. Candidly, when I was starting I was untouchable. No one wanted to talk to me or work with me. No one wanted to be involved with me. So the people that did care about me and know me and loved me and knew me for who I was, they were the ones that believed in me and supported me and said, hey, I'll help you. And by them helping me, I helped them, right? So the friends I hired, I didn't poach them out of these huge high-powered jobs. A lot of these women were like me. We were young. A lot of them, this was their either their first job or it was their only job opportunity at that moment because they were helping me. I was helping them and it was this beautiful mutual partnership. Did any of us sit and say, how is this going to affect our friendship? Yes. There were clear guidelines and boundaries. I'll never forget sitting down and having a conversation with, if not all, most of them saying the business comes first. And our friendship is separate, but I will always make decisions based on what's best for the business. And I'm going to ask you to do that too. And if you don't think you can do that, we cannot work together. And so we had this really awesome partnership over the years. And when it came time for them to go, we parted with love and respect. And I'm still friends with every single one of them today. I do not think there is weirdness or awkwardness there. But Here's where it would have all imploded and where it will go wrong for others that are hiring their friends if they don't have that conversation. If you don't set ground rules and you don't say, this is how it's going to be. Are you cool with this? That's where things go crazy. And that's where things go upside down. So I tried to always be very explicit and very clear on the way things were going to go. So like, hey, come and do this, but this is the rule. Like this is the way it's going to go down. If you're not up to this, don't come. And candidly, this is not a marriage. It's a job, right? And jobs are not always forever. So my advice to people out there that want to hire a friend or want to work with someone close to them, I think you have to just accept that it won't be forever, right? People don't stay at jobs forever. They just don't. There will come an end point. Will you be comfortable in a world where that person no longer works with you? And can you end that conversation in a healthy, peaceful way? And if the answer is no, don't work with them. And if the answer is yes, then go for it, right? We see a lot of people, not just at our company, but others who, when they're exiting a job, don't necessarily do it with the, how you spoke it with love on good terms. What's your um, advice for people listening who are just trying to figure out how you actually exit and have their boss go on to say the great things that that you just did. You know, don't get me wrong. In the early days, I'm sure there are people that have left Bumble that don't feel like they parted in the right way. You just learn. You navigate along the way. Yeah. Ups and downs and ups and downs. We're not perfect. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that 
don't have perfect things to say about Bumble. And that's fine because this is a growth story, right? We never said, hey, come work for our Fortune 500 company. We've been here for 65 years and plug into our HR team. When we were a team of five or six people, what do you expect, right? And so I think now my firm belief is treat people with love and care as they go out the door, irrespective of what has taken place, right? Even if they have not met their deliverables or anything, we should be supporters of each other, right? And the world is small and life can be long and karma is a real thing. And I always tell people that come apply for me when they want to get a job, if they even mutter a a word that is ill towards where they worked before they're out of the interview, it's over. Like if I say, why did you leave whatever company you left? And they say, oh, I had challenges with the culture or their boss or their person. I just think we should be kind about where we've been and about who worked for us because it doesn't get anyone anywhere to talk poorly, right? Yeah. I want to uh, talk about what I think you do best at, better than anyone else, which is marketing Oh, and brand marketing. Well, thank you. It's just been incredible to see how Bumble has evolved as a brand and done such interesting things. What's your philosophy around marketing? I feel like a lot of people don't know how to approach things that don't necessarily, like you don't know if they're going to be tangible benefits. Well, first of all, I really appreciate that. And I guess the best way to explain the way I think about this is back to my early days. So when I went to college, I wanted to go into advertising and marketing and I failed the entrance exam to the advertising school. What that, oh my God, stop. The exam was really about ROI. It was all about, you know. And that's hysterical, by the way. I know. Like I think about the stuff that I didn't get into Mm -hmm. or. That's amazing. It is funny. Isn't that wild? I know. it, It is really funny. But it makes sense actually, because where I understood marketing is what I'm about to say next is, you know, I I didn't get into the advertising school, but the the test was all about ROI. It was all about if you buy a commercial, how do you measure the impact? How do you measure the amount of views? And then because I had no other choice, I ended up studying global studies and that's where I learned marketing. That was where I understood globalization and what made people tick in different cultures and the nuances, right? That's marketing. That's branding. It's humans. Understanding people. What makes people tick? Sociology, anthropology, psychology. And these were the classes I was exposed to. And it's always the way I've thought is, you know, it's all about relationships and it's all about how do you make someone feel something. And so when I've approached marketing and branding over the years, it's been contentious to some degree sometimes because I've wanted to go and do something that has nothing to do with our right? Like a hive in New York City, for example, or in LA. How are you actually going to measure the impact of this thing? And it's expensive, but that's where the magic is, right? And that's always been our magic is doing things from day one. And I don't think it works for companies six years in to go and be like, oh, let's build this brand story around something because it's not authentic. So I wanted to be really, really meticulous from day one and do things that had this tug on your heart, right? An emotional reaction from people, even if it didn't directly correlate to the product, which a lot of our stuff has not come directly back to the product. It's a bigger story. It's this like intangible moat. And that's the way I've always thought about it. And our team has done a great job executing against that. If a founder is more capital constrained and has to make 
really tough choices. If I have to get the product off the ground, but also I have a brand that I want to get out there, how do you think about what their approach should be? Yeah. How do you think about creating the magic versus like the things that are actually show the ROI? Well, first of all, I want to be clear. I didn't have millions of dollars. They want to go do a hive that came after monetization, all these great things. I went and bought chalk boxes. I got a bee costume for $29 on the internet and put my great Dane in a bee costume and filmed little <laughs> videos of him walking down the street that I had spent six hours chalk arting, right? So there are creative ways to build a brand. I would do chalk outside of relevant places like cool coffee shops or places that the single person would walk through. Caroline Roach, who's she's still with us. She's my first employee. I remember she and I went to FedEx and printed these banners that you can get for like 200 bucks. We would do that with our logo and we would go get flyers and we would just go put them in different places. I'll never forget. We spent me and our first like four or five, six employees. We printed out probably 3000 of these little cards with like be kind and our values and everything. And we wrapped Bumble hairbands around them. And then we went around town and we asked every yoga studio and every boutique and every hair salon, can we leave these at your front? We would give these to single women. And so, you know, that costs, I mean, not nothing, but we're talking hundreds of dollars, not even thousands of dollars. And this is a creative way to get your brand out there and to be in front of someone. So we hustled and we still do to this day. I mean, I'm crazy and I still put stickers out and I still carry Bumble merch in my purse everywhere I go because you have to, right? You have to, or the magic goes away. This podcast is not on video, but just for the audience listening, Whitney is currently wearing a Bumble sweater. So she is she is walking the walk. <laughs> it's my uniform. It's funny you mentioned the banners because we used to print those mm-hmm. out too. And I remember we were like, oh my gosh, it has to be like printed perfectly because we're going to have to use it for the yep. next year because it was like $300. Exactly. And we did the same. Yeah. You have to fold it and like keep it in you a just, drawer. Oh my God, folding yeah. that stupid banner. Yeah. Oh. It's amazing yeah. though, right? Bumble has so many different brand extensions. You know, you have Bumble Biz, you have Bumble BFF, you obviously have the the main product. There's a lot of founders that would have said like, we're going to focus, you know, go just really deep on the dating part for five years. And then we're going to go really, really deep on the BFF part and would not have continued to expand. So how did you think about scaling into different brand extensions while still building out the core? Yeah. Well, remember from day one, I did not want to be focused on a dating app. Right. And so back to that kind of early story, my former business partner, he said, you know, my only one real thing is I only know dating and I get that you want to build some social network and you want to think about friend finding and you want to think about all these other things. But my only caveat is please start with dating, find a way to make dating happen. And so that really led to me saying, how the heck am I going to take this Merci concept and put this into the dating world. And we were all sitting around agonizing about, okay, what's this dating app going to be? And I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, why is the internet so bad? Why did I cry through college because of boys? What is wrong with all of this? And it was the weirdest thing. It just kind of hit me like lightning. And I was like, I know what's wrong. Men always talk first. Men have to always send the first message on the dating app or in real life at the bar. They have to take the cell phone number, three-day rule, the whole thing. Where this whole thing is broken is women don't make the first move. And like that, all of a sudden, I just was like, guys, everybody stop. I know how the product works. I know what we're building. I know what we're doing. On this product, women make the first move. And they have 24 hours to do it. And I was like, it's the Sadie Hawkins dance, but it's digital. And where this is exciting is 
this is a brand that can extend. Women need to make the first move all across their life. They need to make the first move in their professional worlds. This is going to be this incredible woman first brand. Okay, fine. I'll do the dating app with you. That was kind of where I was like, I'm in because I couldn't get behind it entirely until I had that purpose, that mission, that true attachment. And so in that moment, it was almost like written in the stars, right? It wrote itself. And we agreed to start with dating. And then very quickly after that, you know, less than a year in, I was very adamant about designing Bumble for Friends. And we did that and to great success, you know, virtually overnight, we had insane adoption of this. It was just going incredibly well. We have over 10% of our entire audience, of our active audience using BFF. That's incredible. And we've seen when people use the friend finding feature and dating, they have a higher propensity to pay. They have higher engagement levels. They're just better customers across the board. And there's no reason why this cannot extend into every category of your life. And I said that early on. And so that was the way we thought about it. It was day one was like, how do we turn this into something? And then we've just been methodical about how we roll it out. I'm sure you guys have done that with the skim from day one. You're like, okay, we're going to start with the newsletter. And then how do we turn this into a broader media business. Before we go into our audience question, I want to just ask, I loved seeing how you guys IPO'd. It was different because of COVID and it seemed so much more intimate in a way and just native to the culture that you created. What was that moment like for you? I mean, it was surreal to pull up to our street, which was closed off by police for all these media trucks and whatever else was outside to go into our office with NASDAQ. And the most special part about it was it was some of our earliest team. It was the team that helped me build this company that I built this company with them. And it was this intimate thing in our actual hive, in our home. It was bringing this surreal moment to where we made this happen, where we've spent years and years building, where I spent years sitting in there till nine at night and not at the bars with my friends. And so did our team, right? The sacrifice that we all made to make that moment happen. So to be staring into that NASDAQ podium camera with live television and the whole thing, watching my child play with the balloons and my husband, who's been by my side through this whole thing, that's surreal. And so I, even though we were bummed that we couldn't go do the whole ringing the bell thing and it really worked out perfect. It was authentic. And I think that's what made it special. It was just us. I love that. We're going to go into our audience question. We have a question today from Lizzie. What was your attitude towards money and your personal finances when you were starting Bumble? Ooh, that's a great question. So when I was starting Bumble, I was terrified, but I felt that there was never a better time than then, right? I didn't have children. I didn't have these crazy responsibilities financially. I was really just responsible for myself. And so I really asked myself, what do I have to lose, right? What do I have to lose? And that's not the situation for every woman out there, right? There's a lot of women out there that I do think, even with children or even with circumstances that are different, should still go for it, still make it happen. Because if you don't try, you'll never give yourself a chance to succeed. But With finances, the way I would approach this for people, and this is what I've given advice to to friends and other people that I've mentored along the way, make sure that if it goes wrong, you still can survive, right? Just you can do buckets. Like even if your finances are not exceptionally vast at the moment, you can still say, I'm going to use this thousand dollars to give it a go. And I'm going to make sure I have X amount of dollars of my income reserved for this. And 
there are ways to find income on the side. The beauty of whatever your skill set is, you know, you can still do freelance. You can still find ways to make income while you're launching your business. Last question. Who should we have on the show? Have you had Reese Witherspoon? No. Gotta have Reese. Whitney, it's such an amazing moment to have you back on the show and to do this with amidst all of your success. We're so proud of you and um, have learned so much from you. So thank you oh my for gosh. joining us. I feel the same way. I feel the same way about you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.